This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Holmes versus the Mythos. 30s Egyptology. The Exorcist Legacy. And the Darien Scheme. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Ken and Robin ask Ken and Robin. Do Holmes and the Mythos go together? Uh, Robin, I think that we can say that they have gone together in the past and with some degree of success. Notably in a, a short story collection called uh, Shadows Over Baker Street. Yes, uh, which has got about as many good stories as the average Holmesian collection and slightly more good stories than the average Mythos collection. So, you know, what would you, you know, that's like a... 20% hit rate, maybe. So I, I think there's two good stories in that collection. Uh, <laughs> one of them by uh, Neil Gaiman and one of them by our colleague James Louder. Mm-hmm. So I guess uh, I have given us a leading question before we get to our questioner's question, because I think that the thing that that anthology reveals is that Holmes and the Mythos don't go together particularly well. That as soon as you have Holmes going, uh, well, as you know from... Uh, the uh, the cult de ghouls of which this volume I have in my hand, or you know, let me pull the Necronomicon down from my shelf and tell you about Cthulhu. That all of a sudden, that the thing that is iconic about Holmes, his uh, obsessive, detail-oriented rationalism, is pretty much directly opposed 
to the existence of the mythos and Cthulhu and the impossibility of rationalism or rationalism being uh, a horror because rationalism implies in uh, you know the absence of any teleology or God and just an absent a random existence uh, uh, slowly grinding us all down into paste and that uh, either uh, Cthulhu loses in a uh, Holmes Cthulhu matchup in that he is reduced to a, a, a figure of uh, that can be comprehended and defeated rationally, or uh, Holmes loses in that his worldview and heroism are proven to be incorrect. And when you try to fit them both together, it just doesn't fly. What do you think of that theory? I think that you're right at the bottom, uh, which is that the Holmes and the mythos are fundamentally about different things in terms of their uh, their iconic statement about the world are opposites. But I think that's another reason, uh, sort of ironically, I guess, that those can be made to mesh because the act that Holmes performs to make sense of the world is precisely the act that Lovecraft warns you against performing. And so you can completely detour it the way that Gaiman does. And I think that uh, Study in Emerald, while good, is vastly overrated. It is not certainly Hugo-worthy, um, but it was enjoyable while I read it. I thought that the Brian Stableford story in that collection was, was better, for example, but I'm a big Stableford fan, and I like Tim Levin's Horror of the Many Faces a good bit. But I think that because Holmes's Road to the Truth is exactly Lovecraft's Road, road to Insanity, you can piece together things sort of in the corners of it. You can have uh, sort of a story in which Holmes solves the immediate problem, but the reader is therefore left to have pieced together the great vacuo that is the mythos around Holmes. Uh, that's, that can be a, a good way to do it. Also, of course, you have the fact that Sherlock Holmes, in many cases, acts merely as a signifier or as one aspect of the, uh, of, of the setting, uh, which is to say that it's because you got Sherlock Holmes, you're saying, we are in Victorian uh, literary England with all of the literary adventure that that implies and imputes, and Holmes becomes the emblem of rationality to either be overthrown by the story, which can happen, or uh, acts as the uh, brief success of rationality, which happens, for example, in The Nunwich Horror or, to a lesser extent, in, the, in Charles Dexter Ward, uh, and Holmes then stands in for Victorian heroism, which admittedly weakens Holmes, but it can open up to a, a, uh, a productive set of adventure, either in fiction or in gaming. So in your conception of a Holmes uh, mythos mashup, is Holmes an occultist? Is he reaching for the Necronomicon and uh, waving the Elder Sign? Or is he sort of existing in a, a parallel consciousness where he is not admitting the uh, possibility of the supernatural, but we as readers or as uh, players, I guess, in a game scenario... Uh, acknowledge its existence, even though he doesn't. I, I think Holmes can uncover, for example, the spore of the mythos and track it to its human progenitors, right? So Holmes could absolutely track down Joseph Kerwin and say that uh, he is, you know, behind all these mysterious grave robbings, or he could track down the Chocho cult that's that's operating in London, or he could track down um, uh, uh, whatever sort of, um, you know, if you if you imagine Holmes going up against the Arthur Mock, even the Arthur Mock in London, you still have a, a frisson of Holmes getting to the edge of the cliff and no farther. Uh, and I think that that is probably the best way to do Holmes is to have him get to the edge of the cliff, 
Holmes thinks uh, that the mystery is solved, as indeed it is, but we, the reader, because of our privileged position, know that he has gone literally as far as rationality can go. Um, I don't see Holmes getting down the Necronomicon, but I do see Holmes maybe getting down his uh, his casebook and saying, this guy is a well-known uh, uh, black magician, and going after him, uh, and maybe, and Holmes doesn't necessarily believe in black magic, but he knows that there are people out there who do, who are getting up to no good, which of course, was true in historical 1894, much less in Sherlock Holmes's 1894, where things are more exciting, and there are, you know, Sussex vampires and black dogs uh, glowing with luminous paint and all manner of other uh, borderline supernatural things that Holmes investigates. And Holmes certainly does, in his own adventures, walk up to the edge of sort of existential revelations and then stop. Uh, there's There's lots of times where he gets to one part of a mystery and he says, well, Watson, we can go no further, and that's all you hear. Right, because, of course, uh, Holmes is a supreme rationalist uh, written by a fervent believer in the supernatural. Mm -hmm. One thing that you could, I suppose, do is envision Holmes as an unknowing living incarnation of the Elder Sign, so that he is imposing rationality uh, in what is actually a, a supernatural antithesis to the mythos that by its very nature, he can never acknowledge lest he lose his power so that uh, he may be, you know, his very presence may be the thing that turns, uh, you know, deep ones uh, with uh, just back into, you know, regular weird villagers with the Innsmouth look. And uh, when he arrives on a scene, he sort of winds up kind of veiling it out, uh, even though he never acknowledges or um, perceives uh, anything as supernatural. So I guess this brings us to the actual question part of Ask Ken Robbins. So why don't you hit us with that? Sami Usatalo asks, if so, what advice do we have for an Armitage file style campaign in which Holmes dies at Reichenbach Falls and Watson, Irene Adler, and Inspector Lestrade must use his notes to pursue a mythos threat? First of all, good for you, Sami. I wish you luck of putting together an Armitage Files campaign based on a classic of Victorian literature. I can only imagine how delightful and entirely stress-free <laughs> your life will go from that point. I don't know what, what you're referring to at all, Ken. I, I, I think that Sami has got nothing but blue skies and custard pies in his future to run this game. Um, I think that uh, a lot will depend on whether or not Sami makes the... The, the capital error, as Holmes would say, of writing down Holmes's notes ahead of time, or simply says Holmes's notes are a some such and such uh, investigative pool um, that you can use to solve any number of questions about London or these other sorts of topic areas, while not actually letting you sort of have a Cthulhu mythos spend specifically and. It is because of the absence of rationality, as you imply, that now the universe is teetering off its edge, and Holmes has gotten you to the literally to the edge of the abyss in this, and Watson, Adler, and Lestrade are pursuing him over the edge of it by going out into the 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 sort of unmoored by rationality universe that is left after Holmes is dead. The thing that I would want to eventually reveal is as you piece together the letters, you start to slowly discover that uh, Holmes indeed did encounter and understand and acknowledge the mythos, and that's why he killed himself 
at Reichenbach Falls. And he just waited for, you know, he was planning on, on doing it because he could no longer live in a universe in which rationality did not have the upper hand. And he just sort of waited for an opportunity where his suicide would do some good. So, you know, he took Moriarty with him. Right. But so that gives you that sense of, of horror. And you could, I suppose, reveal that uh, at the beginning. But I think it's more interesting to have that sort of be a stinger that you gradually piece together as you, uh, so that as you're putting all these letters together, you are tracing Holmes's descent into madness, which hopefully, uh, in with you know any keeper worth his salt is going to ensure that p- paralleling that is Lestrade and Watson and uh, Adler's uh, similar descent into madness as they discover more and more about the mythos. Yeah, I think um, that is uh, that. That's sort of one of your two big thematic arcs. The other being literally the abyss. I mean, you've got, um, as I say, you've got Reichenbach Falls there as sort of the symbolic kickoff point of your game, which means you should be aiming it toward a similar sort of dizzying, vertiginous disaster at the end. Um, if the mythos threat is instead, you know, something relatively homebody y like Glocky or uh, even Cthulhu, I think that you run the risk of, you know, sort of crossing your symbolic wires. I think if you're going to be starting with Reichenbach with that great symbol, you need to be heading for, you know, Yogg-Sothoth or, or potentially Haster, something that, that literally acts to disintegrate uh, earth and land, sea and uh, sky, uh, sanity and humanity, uh, and, and, and plunge them into nothingness. Um, you could maybe uh, work a little bit with the abyss slash abyss of the sea Cthulhu stuff, but that is a little harder because the part of the horror of Cthulhu is very tactile, and I think that you maybe want to be aiming away from that. Although, you know, I leave it up to you. Whatever. Right. Well, and you could start s- slow and then escalate, right? Mm-hmm. So the the first thing is you finally investigate the giant rat of Sumatra, and that turns out to be, you know, an, uh, an overfed brown Jenkin. Mm-hmm. And so you're still left wondering, well, you know, why did what has this got to do with Holmes going over the falls? This doesn't make any sense. This case doesn't relate to this. And so you could sort of work your way up slowly from the more minor uh, threats where you can just sort of have the fun of conjuring up the gaslight Victorian era and combining it uh, with, uh, so that, uh, for example, that could be Holmes' scientific notes and you find a dissection for the rat of Sumatra and you turn over the page and, Oh well, Holmes was clearly being fanciful here when he drew the uh, a human-like face on the on the rat. That seems unlike him. Let's go mm-hmm. and find out where he encountered the rat, and you can have that uh, thing. But even that story, uh, the original, leads you into uh, sort of dimensionless space and and stuff, and so that could go uh, quite a ways. So you could, for a while, sort of play the game of recasting various iconic Lovecraftian uh, stories and motifs in the uh, Victorian era. Are there specific other elements of the uh, Holmes mythos that you'd want to uh, bring into the uh, Lovecraftian mythos? Well, I like your idea of using the un- the unsolved cases, right? The ones f- for which, as Watson said, literally the world is not yet ready. So you have the disappearing Matilda Briggs, which of course is a great Cthulhu one. You have uh, the uh, I forget what what else he was a dancer and duelist Isadora Pusano, who was found staring mad at a matchbox containing a remarkable worm un- unknown to science. That's a that's a Lovecraft hook right there by itself. There you go. I, I think you could go through a lot of those. Uh, the the notorious can- uh, canary trainer Wilson, whose uh, whose arrest uh, or was it arrest or his death. Uh, removed a plague spot from the east end of London. I think that you've got a lot of 
uh, possibilities with things that um, uh, the trained cormorant, what is he going out over the sea and getting and bringing back? Um, there, I think there's a lot of fun with sort of the uh, the the unsolved Holmes cases, and that can actually provide you with a metric by which you slowly get more and more, perhaps literally even insane, in the sense that the solutions become more and more unhinged from reality, and as you know, you as Watson and you as Lestrade especially have to sort of cat move your little Victorian head around it, you begin to actually suffer from trying to solve these cases for which the world is not yet ready. And you present the unexplained Holmes or the unexplored Holmes as loci of, of terror. And I think that could be a lot of fun. Um, what what would you do with Mycroft in, in this case? Would Mycroft be the sort of annoying uh, proto-MI5 uh, shut-everything-down denotice guy that he is in sort of later uh, uh, postmodern Holmes fiction? Or would Mycroft be a, a right guy who knows too much and is just sitting there in the Ogenes Club because he's afraid to go out? I, I would go with that. Is that. He's already gone and seen these things. He maybe saw them. Be- maybe that's why he never leaves the club, right? right. That's he already racinated themselves entirely from the evidences that Holmes brought to him, and now he, he doesn't leave the club because of that. Right. So that uh, it could very well be that, you know, if he steps out of the club, that the stuff that, that he and Holmes did together in an, an abortive attempt to work the ritual almost brought down the Oxithoth. They thought they were conducting a, uh, a banishing ritual, but it turned out to be a summoning ritual so that uh, he ran to the Diogenes Club before the sky could run with blood and he's in there, but he knows the moment he steps out that door that everything's going to crank right back up again so that he is trying to steer the PCs away from uh, uncovering all of this stuff and possibly repeating the mistake that he and Holmes made together. But most of all, he wants to make sure he does not leave that club. And so as you go along, you get little hints and pieces of that as well. And so the climactic thing that brings about the uh, great quasi-apocalyptic, or if the PCs do it wrong, apocalyptic ending to your campaign is one in which somehow Mycroft is dragged kicking and screaming out of that club. And so that, again, can take a figure of apparent supreme rationality, because, of course, that's still the front he has to maintain. And then and then that gives you uh, actually both aspects, right? That he is living in terror of the mythos, and also he is, on, in a low-level way, sort of uh, trying to frustrate and discourage uh, the PCs as they go. You've got, um, I think, a real possibility here, and I don't know necessarily how much you might want to do this, but I think it could really, really work if you if you played it right. Mycroft and Holmes become, uh, and Sherlock, become literally the Heisenbergian observers. And it is the act of such supremely rational, like the literally best human minds ever, right? These are the guys that are too smart even to go in my go brain cylinders. They are literally the, you know, the absolute embodiments of observation and rationality. And it is the act by which they perceive the world of the mythos that collapses the wave function, right? It's the act of their discovering it and perceiving it that is the overt act that begins the countdown to apocalypse. And that's why Holmes throws himself into the waterfall, is not because he can't live in a world that has gone 
irrational. That's not a Holmesian response. But if his response is, my act of perceiving more of the mythos is instantiating it, is bringing it into existence, because I am the Heisenbergian privileged observer, that is a rational reason to throw yourself off a waterfall uh, wrapped around Moriarty as, as a uh, lanyap, right? Right. And you can still have both of those reveals, right? That partway through, you think it, it, that Holmes has succumbed to despair because he did not want to live in a cosmos ruled by Yogg-Sothoth. And then even further on down the line, you realize that he did it in order to uh, make sure that he did not bring Yogg-Sothoth into being, which raises the question, uh, do you go kill Mycroft? Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's, um, maybe it's you who are dragging Mycroft out of um, uh, uh, the, the Diogenes Club. And as his eyes and the sky begin to bleed, you the ritual is literally to destroy his brain so that the mythos is once more only partially perceived and therefore can't manifest all at one point and thus destroy the universe. Or, best case scenario, give birth to like a million spawn of Yogg-Sothoth as every pregnant woman in London suddenly, you know, erupts in uh, mythos agony. Because uh, somehow the Diogenes Club is sufficiently warded that you can't kill Mycroft as long as he's inside it. Right, whatever yeah. you do, uh, even if you shoot him at point-blank range, your uh, gun is going to misfire. If you strangle him, the garrote is going to break. Mm -hmm. And only if you drag him outside the club are you able to uh, uh, finish him off. And just the image of Watson and uh, Adler and Lestrade getting to the point where they decide they have to murder Mycroft uh, is, is colorful enough. Out there in Pall Mall, even. <laughs> right, but they have to drag him out of the building in order to do it. And, of course, dragging him out of the building uh, sets the, the sky blood red. Right. And it's not easy because he's not a small guy. He's not a small guy. And he's, uh, you know, a big chunk of the Diogenes Club are actually, uh, you know, highly trained uh, Baker Street irregulars in... Bartitsu. Yep. Yeah, uh, ready to uh, defend him. And so you've got to uh, lay waste to the Diogenes Club and... Uh, in Quentin proper Tarantino bloodbath style exactly, and drag in, in out proper and then, uh, Trail of Cthulhu player fashion. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, I, well, I think we've got some pretty good signposts for uh, a Sami's campaign and uh, can uh, head over our own fall to the next segment, complacent in our success. It's time for another installment of Among My Many Hats, the chunk of this show in which our implicit self-promotion turns into explicit self-promotion, and this time the hat is of a distinctly pith variety, perhaps even a pith helmet, as Ken has served up yet another installment of Ken Writes About Stuff. That's, of course, the subscription PDF series of uh, quick-hit uh, Ken erudition, and in this case... He's looking at 1930s Egyptology. So let's say I'm running a Trail of Cthulhu campaign, and I've had something for my hobo character to do, and some, uh, some uh, uh, high society mystery for my dilettante to get into, and uh, perhaps some hard-boiled stuff for my private investigator. But the academic character, the professor, who's been described all along as, as an Egyptologist, I'm just getting to that character, and lo and behold, here's your 19th 
30s Egyptology, Ken writes about stuff. How is it going to help me uh, thrill and chill my resident Egyptologist while keeping the other characters along for the terrified ride? Okay, the specific Ken writes about stuff single that we're talking about is called Tomb Hounds of Egypt, and it provides uh, primarily a campaign frame for not your current campaign necessarily to add an Egyptian flavor, although they could certainly visit Egypt and have adventures, but it uh, hopes that you are playing the kinds of people who in the 1930s find themselves uh, stuck between the dwindling supply of Egyptian artifacts and the increasing demand for Egyptian artifacts, and work to resolve that problem in proper hyphen-hound fashion. So this is a sort of a play on book hands where it's about the chase for the artifacts. Yes, and uh, if you are playing your regular uh, Trail of Cthulhu campaign and you're adding an Egyptological note, there are obviously rules for Egyptian magic if you want to have that. There's the cults of Egypt, so one of those cults can reach out and, and smuck you. There's uh, various monsters and mummies. There are uh, some data about the various magical uh, papyri and what they can do for you. Uh, and the specifics on how you sort of carry out an, an Egyptological dig and how you carry off an Egyptological tomb raid, and are there any specific differences that you might want to know about, maybe? So this lets you create the scenario. If you're in an ongoing uh, campaign, you figure out which uh, mythos uh, bad guy you've been sort of trailing along. You figure out how that manifested itself in ancient Egypt, and off you are to the races. There is a uh, something that you find in maybe the British Museum that lists... Uh, this uh, tomb or this uh, pyramid that have been partially excavated, but sadly, with the Depression and with the increase in Egyptian nationalism, there are no more licenses to, to find out, so maybe we'll never know what's in that tomb, and your professor says, ha, that's not how they taught us at Cambridge, and off you go to uh, um, liberate the truth from the grip of Sandy Time. Or you run this as a either a one-off in which you're playing the guys who dig up the artifact, and maybe they'll die horribly while it's on its way to the British Museum, and then your characters sort of pick it up at the British Museum, and the professor gets to do his Egyptological bit about the artifact, and you, the players, have had the little cutscene moment where you've played out the poor bastards who dug it up and suffered the horrific tomb curse as a result. So in the default campaign frame, uh, is we're playing... Uh, Egyptologists and antiquarians and uh, dealers in quasi-legitimate uh, artifacts. Mm -hmm. um, so, how do we distinguish our characters from one another and have a create a when we're creating the characters uh, together? How do we uh, make sure each character has a distinct niche within this um, narrower, uh, more focused? Uh, version of uh, Trail of Cthulhu. Well, a lot of it is the same sort of way that you do it in Bookhounds or in or in Dreamhounds. You do it with interpersonal uh, play. You do it with specific mixes of abilities. Um, we add the greed drive in, again, like we did in Bookhounds. And obviously in Egypt, there is the difference of reaching across uh, what in the 1930s were considered racial boundaries. Um, and so you can play the Rais, who is the native foreman who is the guy who fixes everything in the native community, and that is a fairly unique sort of character. And then the other possibility is that you can add uh, in the forger and the uh, occultist from Bookhounds, who can also play a, a pretty good role in Two Mounds. But I think, again, you have to sort of begin by deciding 
what is your role-playing niche, and then play into that in the same way that you do in a bookhounds game, as opposed to having, you know, widely various uh, sort of, what do I want to say, primary skill roles. Although, again, depending on how big your party is, as long as you've got, you know, an Egyptologist and a smuggler and a dilettante, those are three pretty different guys. And then you add, you know, a forger or an occultist or a, or a, 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 you know, military man or whatever, and you can start moving the, the, the types out. There's plenty of perfectly normal Trail of Cthulhu campaigns where it can be tough to distinguish on paper the parapsychologist from the Egyptologist from the historian, but it all sort of, you know, comes out in the wash as the players themselves pick out their own niches. Right. In the final analysis, it's always up to the players to distinguish their characters mm-hmm. from one another during play, no matter how similar their character sheets might look at a glance. And the other thing about uh, the, the Cairo setting, or the or the Egypt setting in the 1930s, is it's very multinational. So you can have an American and a Brit and a Greek and a Jew and an Egyptian and maybe an Irish mercenary or a German scientist who has fallen on hard times ever since of all. Or, you know, an exiled white Russian. There's there's a little tiny Chinese community in Cairo. So you could literally be, from a, a bigger melting pot, a bigger mix of people who all have a reason to interact with each other in this kind of uh, social setting than necessarily in your straight-up trail game where you're playing a bunch of Americans in Arkham or even in a Bookhounds ca- campaign where even though you're in London, which is another great polyglot city, the default is you're going to be an Englishman of one or another kind, or maybe for exciting flavor, a Welshman or a Scot. Um, and in, in, in Egypt, it really does begin with, are you European or are you Egyptian? And then there's a lot of different kinds of European you might be. Now, we kind of tend to think of the mid-20s as kind of the apex of Egyptology, because that's when Tut is discovered. Mm-hmm. How has that milieu changed uh, into the 30s and into the Depression? Well, the, the big changes are two. The first is, as I mentioned, the, the Depression really wrecks budgets back home. Uh, you don't have museums. Little museums aren't able to, to mount excavations. Even big museums cut it back, like the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York stops excavating entirely in 1936. So there's a big uh, lack of, of funding in the in the European and American community, and that is exacerbated by the changes in Egypt, because prior to, say, 1922, you could go down, dig stuff out of Egypt. The deal was that you left half of what you found in Egypt, and you could take the other half back to Europe and sell it. And that helped you fund a lot more archaeology. But after 1922, after Egyptian independence, um, they start getting, you know, a little stroppy about letting people loot half of the finds in their country. <laughs> yeah, it seems a bit excessive. <laughs> yeah. And so they say, no, we're not going to give you a license to dig unless you agree to give all of it to Egypt. And maybe we'll let you take certain sample or ideal type finds back to the well, British we'll Museum. We'll let you write some wherever. papers. It's the yes. papers you really want, yeah, it's, isn't it? It's about scholarship, right? Not yeah. about tomb robbing. And, you know, the Egyptologists, well, uh, you know, okay. it's not all about the tomb yeah, robbing. Okay. But, uh, but the result is that you, it's much harder to fund an expedition. Uh, and so, and also, of course, the, the, the uh, Egyptians are beginning to train up their own band of Egyptologists, their own band of archaeologists, who are getting, you know, some would say completely reasonably, uh, pole position in a lot of these digs. This is the era in the 1930s where the very first uh, professional Egypt, Egyptian Egyptologists are beginning to uh, operate. Some of them are Copts and some of them are, uh, are, are Muslim Egyptians. But 
they are beginning to sort of either get raised up within the sort of European construct where the Europeans are saying, well, if we had a guy who actually, you know, grew up speaking Coptic in church, that might help. And then you've also got the Egyptian government saying, we need to have an Egyptian presence in this, uh, in this endeavor. And then the other thing that's happening in Egypt in the 1930s is, of course, World War II is, you know, running down the, 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 the tracks on you. And so you've got all manner of, of intelligence and spy activity that goes on. And I cover that a little bit. Some of the, um, you know, the, the Obver has got, uh, guys in the main Obver agent. His girlfriend is a dancing girl who lives on a houseboat in the Nile and entertains, uh, various, uh, in, important figures there, uh, to the detriment of those figures. Uh, oaths of secrecy, one imagines. So, uh, what would you envision as a strong way of binding a, uh, a polyglot group in a Cairo-based campaign together? What is the sort of base of operations that keeps them uh, working together and having a place to meet up and plan their next thing? Well, I think that you begin by assuming either that they are the sort of um, crew that always gets together for borderline criminal, borderline archaeological activities in the same way that you would have a crew that gets together for bank robberies or a crew that gets together for an academic colloquium on, you know, the proper ro role of the Ushabti and funeral procedures. And those, both the academic and the criminal have natural, you know, uh, focal points around which uh, uh, people who help out the main and endeavor. And when it comes to tomb excavation, there's not necessarily a, a huge uh, line between those two things. Exactly. Um, and the, uh, and, and I think you'd begin with that. I think, you might want to do what I what I like to do at the beginning, which is to have these guys, even if they were assembled on an ad hoc basis, they run into something that suddenly makes them realize they sort of have to stick together. They're all under the same potential curse, or they all uh, realize that there is a, a bigger score that if they stay together, they can all get to, or ideally both. And then that uh, that that will drive it. You can you can certainly give them a a uh, a bar somewhere in Cairo or a um or an, or a, a cubby hole in the library of the American University of Cairo where they can all keep their books and uh and meet up every now and again or you can just have them all have one egyptological license that lets them dig somewhere and as long as they don't lose it and if, if you know if one of them says I'm taking my bat and ball and going home it's like fine now you don't even have the fic the thin fig leaf of this license and so, you know, now you can't uh, do anything. So that might be a possibility. So if I'm uh, playing in a, a Trail of Cthulhu game set in uh, Cairo centered around uh, excavation of tombs, of course, there are certain things that I'm going to expect to happen. I'm going to want a Lovecraftian twist on the mummy. Mm -hmm. I'm going to uh, want to uh, run into uh, Nidocris at some point. And, of course, Neralathotep would have to show up, uh, possibly just as a dude you can meet hanging around Cairo. Yeah. Uh, what other uh, less expected uh, Lovecraftian motifs can you weld an ancient Egyptian uh, gloss onto? Well, the, one of the other big things that I think you can play with with Cairo is that it is one of the cities that is sitting on top of one of the literally oldest graveyards in the world, obviously, since the necropolis of uh, the old Memphis is pretty much where they built Cairo. It's got Necropolis right in the it's name. It's got Necropolis right in the name. And so there are a lot of ghouls in my version of Cairo, uh, I think. And so you can go there. There is the, uh, the cult of Bedouins that dropped Harry Houdini down into the pyramid to go after the, the thing that lives underneath the, the pyramid. So 
I think you've got a, a strong possibility of something like that. The other uh, possibility that you have is the Robert Block uh, contribution to the mythos, which was heavily focused around the god Sebek, the, crop, the crocodile god, and I think you can head in a lot of fun directions from that. The um, There was a crocodile cult at the town of uh, Crocodilopolis, uh, as it was called. It's got Crocodilopolis right in the name. Right in the name, exactly. Uh, or Shedet, as the Egyptians called it, because they didn't know about the word crocodile yet, um, not having <laughs> met the Greeks. And so uh, there is a, a whole city uh, devoted to the sacred crocodile. Similarly, of course, there is the city of Bast. So if you have got a Cats of Ulthar uh, jingle going on, you can introduce Bast and see if she is a good and happy goddess who helps you out. Or the problematic goddess that Block wrote about in Brood of Bubastus, in which the old joke about a dog will guard your corpse and a cat will eat it, uh, turns out to be eerily prescient. Well, I know if I was running this, the first thing that I... Well, not the first thing I would establish, but the thing that I would begin to establish would be ghoul-human hybrids. That this seems like exactly the place where uh, the ghouls need a relationship with the upper world, and, uh, you know, they're not undead in the Lovecraft formulation, so the... And, you know, Weird magic exists, so they've found a way to uh, have uh, some people with uh, heavy-duty ghoul blood in them, which, of course, is another very Lovecraftian motif, uh, as, uh, you know, just as shopkeepers and uh, perhaps uh, the new Egyptologist who comes along, and uh, they've got this sort of a ghoulish look about them. He's got a real gift for finding funerary ruins. Right, but (laughs) you can uh, talk to them and interact with them, maybe... Uh, PC even unknowingly is is one of them, and so that gives you uh, yet another element uh, for your uh, cultural meeting place. Yes, I recommend picking up the Kwa's single on hideous creatures ghouls for that purpose, because there are indeed ways to play an unknowing ghoul hybrid right in that very book. Oh, well, since we're branching out in our uh, promotional efforts, that uh, signifies that it's time to uh, branch on down to our next segment. the smell of popcorn, and the shh from the people behind you who don't want you to talk about it, and nor should you, tell us we have entered the Cinema Hut. And today in the Cinema Hut, Robin, you have a seminal film, a seminal piece of cinema to discuss. And so without further ado, let's skip the trailers, let's skip the ads, let's skip the other trailers. Robin, tell us what we're here to see. Well, I want to examine The Exorcist, uh, which of course is... uh possibly the highest grossing horror film of all time. It was certainly, uh, if I think if you adjusted for inflation, that's, I would not be surprised to find out that is true. Although, uh, this bit, this being an extemporaneous podcast, of course, I did not deign to check that uh, <sighs> fact that I pulled out of the air. Check. Um, but I, I would, I would bet that probably is. And it certainly, he was a huge cultural phenomenon and, uh, therefore spawned a ton of kind of low rent, uh, imitators uh, in its day. I mean, given that it made $450 million in the 70s, I think that you have a strong argument. <laughs> yeah, um, and had a lot of uh, imitations, including, you know, big budget 
uh, things that drew on that whole uh, devilment theme, like the Omen probably would be the yes. biggest other example, but there are uh, tons of other imitators, uh, not all of them Italian. Um, and uh, But now we've got another resurgence, and the resurgence has gone on uh, much longer, actually, than the original Exorcist craze. Uh, in 2005, a director named Scott Derrickson uh, did a film called The Last Exorcism, and that uh, helped to spawn Paranormal Activity a couple of years later, which uh, combined a, three different threads of horror. It had the demonic possession uh, motifs. It uh, then combined uh, ghost story uh, motifs and, ha and uh, haunted house uh, motifs with uh, uh, demon uh, imagery, and so that sort of threaded two different strands of horror cinema. And then it also brought in the whole found footage aspect that you got in Blair Witch. And mm -hmm. uh, ever since those uh, two films, uh, you continue to see a steady uh, stream of demonology-themed uh, horror films coming out. Uh, the one I most recently caught uh, was one called Deliver Us From Evil, also by Scott Derrickson. With uh, the lovely and talented Eric Bana, right, as an occult cop. Yes, uh, yeah. based on uh, a real cop-turned-demonologist, uh, because one of the uh, themes of the resurgence has uh, been uh, sort of a docu-horror aspect, where you want to claim that this is based on a true story. And I think, in a way, that's sort of the root of why people who are frightened by demonology-themed films feel that way, because there's some part of them that thinks that this could actually be real, no matter how many liberties the filmmakers take with the story in order to make it actually interesting. And even Blatty's novel was supposedly based on a true story, right? I mean, he yes. took uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the story of uh, uh, Exorcism in 1949 and sort of you know, spun it through being a really good horror novelist, and it turned out that uh, that I think that was another one of the sort of um, tap roots that goes into it. As as you say, yeah, there's a there's a degree to which uh, a large portion of the American and global film going audience uh, treat a movie about being demonically possessed as different from a movie about vampires or zombies because vampires and zombies don't exist. But if you look at pretty much every scripture in the world, even, you know, the good old Buddhists, there's plenty of demons lurking around and getting up to possessing people. Right. And one of the twists that they installed, uh, with the later, uh, inferior exorcist sequels is it turns out it's not just a classical Western European devil, but it's a, a Sumerian demon. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's uh, a motif that is picked up again in uh, Deliver Us From Evil, which uh, I did not uh, love. I think my favorite Scott Derrickson movie is called Sinister, which does not reveal itself as a uh, demon movie uh, and uh, doesn't really play with the same trappings and I think is much, much creepier um, as a result. And I guess I'm tipping my hand that I don't necessarily love the genre itself as much as I'm interested in it from a sociological perspective. Well, I mean, what did, what did you think of The Exorcist qua The Exorcist? Because obviously, especially in horror, with the, the, the with these sort of sub-genres or, or fads or waves or whatever you want to call it, I mean, just like The Slasher, for example, Halloween is a transcendently great film, but the number of other great slashers can probably be counted on one hand uh, until you cut it off. But uh, there's, you know, The Exorcist... I would argue is is a really really terrific film, just on its own merits, and then the fact that there have been a lot of really crappy exorcism movies is, you know, kind of just what happens in horror. Or do you think that that's 
it's qualitatively different from that. Well, I, I would not cast any aspersions on, on The Exorcist, but I would just say that it, if you take two equally well-made films and uh, one of them is a, a, a vampire or a werewolf and another one, the, the threat is demons. And more importantly, the climax of the film is an exorcism mm-hmm. that the exorcist did that. <laughs> yeah, right. And, yes. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And I'm not saying it didn't in the same way that, you know, if the if zombies are anywhere in that, Romero did that. And that's true. But I, I'm I'm asking, is there a difference in your opinion, I mean, do the exorcist movies or exorcism movies, are they qualitatively, are they, do you, do you downgrade them because of their, their content in the same way that some people are like, oh, I don't like movies with werewolves just because I don't like werewolves? Um, I, I wouldn't say that, but I think that if you are relying on the fact that people believe in the possible existence of these entities, and that's what's scary about it, so that just an, an elaborate exorcism sequence at the end mm-hmm. is going to be a great last act. That's not going to work on me so well. Right, yeah. And I sort of have a feeling that among the nerd community that these are not the horror films that people love the same way that they love, say, Evil Dead or whatever your canonical favorite uh, horror flicks are, even mm-hmm. the even the slasher films. I think that even dyed-in-the-wool horror fans don't necessarily have the same feeling toward the... Uh, I, I certainly know there's a... I think I can say with fair bit of confidence that there's a general disdain among the dyed in the wool horror fan for the paranormal activity series, for example. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, these, these are seen basically as four civilians. Then I wonder uh, what you have to say about why that would be. Well, I mean, a lot of it is because it's, it's the same sort of thing. I mean, paranormal activity uh, did huge box office and spawned a lot of really crummy found footage successors, including ones named Paranormal Activity. And I think that there's a lot of the, you know, if you are a, a proper I- insider in any genre, the, the sort of gross popular manifestation of that is the one that you have rapidly moved through in the same way that if you are a, uh, you know, a, a big fan of, of, of wine, you may not have as many nice things to say about Zinfandel. Uh, it's it's n- nothing, you know, not necessarily knocking Zinfidel. It's just that that's sort of your starter and you've moved through it. Um, and I can, you know, point you to, to brands of scotch that, that big scotch drinkers deprecate. Right. So, so I think that's a, that's a lot of it with the paranormal activity f- films is the, you know, I liked it before it was popular. So let me flip that on its head then and ask you, what is it that appeals to civilians about the last exorcism or paranormal activity that makes them huge hits with people who are not necessarily horror fans. Horror well, I think, fans, I think it is that spiritual, uh, that, that spiritual quality to it. I mean, right now, um, there are not a lot of movies that address religious matters in any straightforward or respectful way. And say what you want about The Exorcist and Paranormal Activity even, it does not, you know, say that you're making up demons. It says demons are real, and if you are going to that film as a believing Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, or anything, uh, you are preconditioned to take a movie seriously that takes your beliefs seriously. And there are not, I mean, it's not the 50s when you have movies about every single guy in the New Testament all the time. We are, we are out of that era. Hollywood no longer presents uh, respectful treatments of faith. At the, at the best, they use them as excuses for terrible, terrible CGI uh uh, fests like the the Noah movie, um, but by and large there just aren't a lot of those movies. And so if you're looking for that, you will you will be drawn 
you know, by that vacuum into things like Paranormal Activity or, or the various Last Exorcist films. Right, and very explicitly, the thesis of Deliver Us From Evil is you had better uh, come back Get to the right Catholic the Church Lord. and start, yeah. start believing uh, because demons are real, buddy. And I guess in a way, I guess you could see this as part of the uh, kind of Christian film submarket, although it's certainly not <laughs> terrible uh, <laughs> touted as such. And Kirk Cameron is nowhere to be seen. Yes. And I don't know if you uh, stamped, you know, quizzed people coming out, uh, how many people would consciously be uh, looking at it in that but way. But again, it's the same It's the same as U2, right? I mean, U2 is a, is a Christian band. They just don't, you know, say, hey, man, we're, we're Christian rock. They say, no, we're a great rock band. Oh, and by the way virtually all of our songs have a Christian message. So knock yourselves out, kids. Right. And one thing about the exorcism movies is that they're not just Christian, but they're explicitly Roman Catholic. Because yeah. Roman Catholicism is still the most cinematic religion. If you want if you want to make a movie about any Christianity, by God, and I speak as a hardcore died in the wolf Presbyterian, you know, make a make a movie about Catholicism. They have got it right. And they've got, you know, they've got whole teams of guys who, who make sure that this stuff looks good and and, and feels good. It, it's, it's a great, great visual horror mythos, uh, Roman Catholicism, and I don't take anything away from that, uh, even though theologically, obviously, I, I prefer a more, um, uh, a more restrained set of, uh, set of constraints. So if we get called up and get asked to do a demonology movie, uh, and, but we want to also please our horror fans and make something that we like and have something where the third act is something other than just oh, here's another exorcism, but it's, you know, it's in this location instead of that location. Um, I think probably of the recent cycle, the best sort of final act uh, exorcism sequence, just in terms of its execution, is The Conjuring, mm -hmm. which again melds the Haunted House movie with the Demonology movie. But right. there's we've seen that a bunch of times now, and there's only so far uh, that can take you, in part because the, the menace is sort of constrained, right? The whole mm -hmm. point of the exorcism is you trap the, the demon in the possessed person and you strap them down. And then from then on, you're just kind of yelling incantations at the possessed person while the demon inside is uh, coming up with new combinations of swear words. How do we have a, a final act that kind of goes beyond that? Do we actually have the characters uh, uh, dragged into Dante's hell? I think that, you know, the, the, the real hole that I see in terms of film is flip it on the head. Don't make the exorcism the final act. Make the final act the Karnacki moment where you've drawn the pentacle and demons are out there and you are inside the pentacle and let's, you know, push it even more constrained. You're not, you don't have a whole haunted house to work with. You have that space in the living room and make it like a really effective, really good cinematic version of um, uh, The Devil Rides Out, right? I mean, even given the horrific constraints on the $9 budget, that's a pretty effective late hammer film. That's one of my faves. And I think if you made a proper Karnacki, Dennis Wheatley style demon movie where the demons are outside rampaging around and you have to make sure they don't come in to get you, I think that you, you could, you could tie that in, you know, in the same way that the demon demonology is brought from the Middle East in 1973 when they make uh, The Exorcist. Not that that had anything to do with other problems from the Middle East beginning to come home to Americans. But I think you could have a similar sort of subtext in a movie now where American and to, I assume, some extent European audiences are feeling a little besieged by forces they don't understand that seem to have come from a darker, more horrifying time 
that they had thought was safely dead. I think you could do a really good Karnacki or Dennis Wheatley film as your next stage in the demonology exorcism type film. And maybe you have your exorcism, instead of being the big third act, right, it's your big first act opener, your pre-credits James Bond sequence, where you've shown what a badass uh, warrior for the Lord your main character is at the opener, and then the whole rest of the movie is he is not as, as you know, he, he has to sort of work to figure out what's going on for the rest of the movie, but you've established his cred early on. I think maybe that's the way to do it. And I guess by that light, really the most uh, successful and effective modern-day demon movies are the Clive Barker's Hellraiser series, whichever number of those you want to specify as being good. And that strips away the uh, Catholic trappings to uh, re-examine demons as sort of emblematic of uh, sexual repression and the uh, sort of counterforce (laughs) of, uh, uh, yes, of crossing uh, physical boundaries that can't be uh, uncrossed once you, once you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, so any further uh, thoughts on the, uh, it now, is there also a political zeitgeist sort of reason why demons are back? Or do you think it's like bell bottoms? It was just long enough and they had to return. Although they've been returned for a long time now, yeah. about 10 years. I, I, I think that in the same way, I mean, I think that a lot of these demon child movies began to be made when the baby boom generation realized that they were not going to be the children forever. Right, that they started making those movies once my generation, our generations, came along and still demanded food and attention. And it, the baby boom reacted with horror to that. And I think there was a lot of that with your Rosemary's Baby and The Omen and all that was, this generation will come and supplant us, and we hate them. And I think that there may be some of that with the exorcism movies, where you have not just a whole new baby boom in the in the role of the, the millennials and the post-millennials, but you've also got that baby boom is really foreign compared to the last one, because it's the product of the big immigration change in 1965. And so I think there's a, a, a good bit of that sub uh, zeitgeist as well. And plus, there is, as I mentioned uh, in the broader political sense, the sense that there is a, a, a medieval quality to the news that has not been present in uh, the pre- uh, 2000 uh, and the mid 2000s era, and I think maybe it's responding a little bit to that, right? You get news about ISIS crucifying people or or uh, beheading uh, heretics, setting people on fire. I think that that maybe casts people's minds back to the time when people were hunting demons for reals, yo. And, and to return once again to deliver us from evil, it it has a uh, a prologue, a cold open set in Iraq, and yep. that's where. They uh, awaken the the uh, demonic force. I think also you could look at helicopter parenting as a sort of the new iteration of child fear that people have, uh, you know, such incredible and in a lot of cases kind of unwarranted fears about the uh, safety of their children, and that can be seen in everything from the anti-vaxxer movement to here the 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 fear that uh, your child you're going to do everything right, but your perfect child is still going to be invaded by a demon. So you could see that as a metaphorical fear of autism, for mm-hmm. example. As and, well as a metaphorical fear of everything else that you're worried your kids are going to get up to, which is, of course, again, part of what drove the first exorcism time is that, you know, who knows what these, uh, you know, these pre-adolescents on the cusp of, of turning into, maybe they'll start having sex and doing drugs like we did. That can't happen. And so it, there I you wonder go. if, I wonder if these are going to continue to parallel uh, demographic boom and bust cycles. And it's just uh, when uh, parents are afraid for their children, although I don't know how many parents are going to uh, 
the theater to see these uh, movies. And as we mentioned on a previous segment, there's also home ownership fear has been yeah. uh, subsumed into this as well as the exorcism movie uh, often becomes a haunted house movie and it's a house that you can't escape anymore and you're underwater on your mortgage and you're afraid that uh, demons are so, going to feed your kids. So, Robin, what you and I obviously need to do is not necessarily resurrect the goetic horror of uh, uh, Devil Rides Out. We need to come up with a horror genre that is the horror that you have graduated with a degree in, with a master's in folklore and are going to be drowned in student debt and can't do anything with it. We need the student debt horror film. <laughs> well, I, I think we'll have to leave that as an exercise for a, another day and another segment. The whirring of time gears and the clacking chronotons tells us that we're once again in proximity to Ken's time machine. That's the conveyance that takes Ken back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yay, even mutilate it. And this week we have a time mission by request, meaning I'm not sure Time Incorporated will sign off on this, but we'll see. Uh, Bob Jameson asks, how would you go about ensuring the success of the failed 1690s project by the Scots to colonize Panama, which is known as the Darien Scheme, or if this is impossible, or <laughs> as Time Incorporated might say, undesirable, since uh, I think Time Incorporated in general is more about mitigating colonialism than making it better. Uh, how would you? <laughs> and, and it and it um uh, it it is not super about saving people from their own cussed idiocy, although if that can happen, well, uh, or uh, you know. We have done segments where there are broad historical forces that make time intervention more difficult. Yes. And idiocy is one of the constants uh, in, in history that is uh, difficult to uh, conquer with a, a mere tumbler of vodka. Um, but anyway, uh, let me continue the question. <laughs> You'd think it would work the other way. <laughs> or possibly, uh, how would you mitigate the disaster and prevent the collapse of the Scottish economy? Because this is... Uh, uh, something that uh, this happens in the 1690s. Scotland is independent, but because of this, not for long. And I guess that's where uh, Time Incorporated, as they ask you for your proposal on this, asks you to pick up the story. Okay. We begin in the 1690s where Scotland is tied to England in a personal union in the sense that the King of Scotland is the same as the King of England. It's William III, uh, but not as an active union. So they're not the same country. They don't even have a customs union, right? There's still tariffs to go back and forth across the Scottish and English border. And the Scots don't get to be part of, say, the East, the British East India Company. Um, they have to have their own East India Company. And they don't have one because it turns out to be expensive uh, to have one of those. And as a result, the Scots decide, uh, and this part is not entirely stupid, that they should have their own East India Company, and they will call it the Company of Scotland for Trading to Africa, and they will set it up, and they will be able to go, and they will get gold from Africa and spices from the Indies, and everyone happy as a clam, until a bright guy named William Patterson, who is the co-founder of the Bank of England, and therefore has a little bit of uh, financial uh, gloss sticking to him, but was thrown out of the Bank of England because one of his friends was doing some embezzling, I think, and also because he was a kind of a jerk. <laughs> well, the embezzling was fine, but yeah. once you turn it to be a jerk. Yeah, now now we have to be serious. But anyway, he was sort of tossed off the Bank of England, looking around for something to do, uh, decided 
to uh, help out with the Bank of Scotland and then decided that now that he had uh, Scotland paying attention to him, and he was Scots uh, born, um, wanted uh, to give them the inside track on his great idea of building a colony in Panama so that you could ship things back and forth across the isthmus and make make fat bank from global trade by cutting off uh, the ships who have to sail all the way around South America, which, of course, later on leads you to do such things as dig the Panama Canal and to great uh, acclaim by everybody. But, however, in 1698, that turns out to be a lot harder than it looks. And uh, they they put something on the order of a fifth, although some sources say half the wealth of Scotland, uh, gets uh, pledged to this uh, project um, because... The English bank, the Bank of England, the Bank of England, and the British East India Company basically threatened to cut off William III's credit if he lets this competitor sort of rise up. So he makes it impossible for them to raise money from England, and then they bring foreign pressure on the investors in Hamburg. Um, and since William III is also the stadtholder of the Netherlands, he prevents the Dutch from investing, so they're down to only what they can raise in Scotland, which turns out to be about 400,000 pounds, and they put it not into ships that will go and try and trade in India, which might have worked, depending on whether or not the uh, East India Company decided to start shooting at them, but into Patterson's brilliant scheme to build a colony in Panama and uh, corner the market on crossing Ismai. So uh, the phrase, uh, this might have worked, indicates a possible moment of time intervention. So uh, is that uh, what you uh, propose to do, if anything is done at all, is to uh, convince them to go and compete with the uh, already established West India Company? Yeah, the, the, on the only way to, f to even have this have a remote chance of succeeding, because I don't know if you know, and I apparently don't know if the Scots knew, but Spain sort of owned Panama at the time and was not going to just sort of sit back and let people build colonies there uh, willy or nilly um, because they made what little foreign exchange they were making by 1700 entirely from silver trade with uh, Mexico and South America and from the Pacific trade from the Philippine Galleon. And as a result, if the Scots had built a successful gateway between the Atlantic and the Pacific, that would have cut the Spanish crown out of some huge percentage of their revenue, and Spain was not the world-beating bad guys that it was a hundred years previously in 1698, but it was easily capable of beating the crap out of a thousand Scotsmen, and indeed did. Right, because <laughs> one of the tricks of colonialism, of course, was to steal a country that no one else had beaten you to stealing. Right. Um, and one of the sort of indicators of the uh, extent of the fiasco was that, in fact, uh, when they did decide to settle and set up a base, they set it up in a place that, to this day, remains largely uninhabited. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I don't think that before you've fixed yellow fever, you're spoiled for choice in Panama. Um, there is kind of not a lot of good places to go, and the Spanish had picked the only good one, Panama City, and were happy with it. And so, trying to find the second... I mean, even now in Panama, there's not a lot outside Panama City. There, it's still a relatively unspoiled um, rural country. So, I, I, and it turns out that what they thought was a harbor was actually a big sandbar, which is a real problem. And so you couldn't put boats in it, and storms would come in and just 
you know, smash things up, which is kind of not what you want in hurricane country. So it was, it was a terrible job of surveying also, um, in addition to the whole larger point, even if they'd sat it down in the, if, if there'd been a great harbor in Panama that somehow the Spanish had not put a harbor in and the Scots had found it, they still would have been sitting right in the middle of the Spanish main with no warships. And so it would have been a terrible, terrible disaster. Uh, uh, I, I don't see any way to get around once you've put a little town in Panama of getting around the fact that the Spanish will come and burn you down. I mean, they did that to uh, the French colony in, in Carolina. They did it to the French and English colonies in Florida. If you tried to settle on the mainland in, you know, certainly within the Spanish main, uh, the Spanish would come and burn you down. That was that was really uh, sort of their their course of dealing, and you'd think that a guy who ran a bank would know that. That's the thing about the Spanish main. They wanted to keep it mainly Spanish. Mainly Spanish, exactly. And so, if the Scots had even decided we're going to go and uh, steal, I don't know, Guadeloupe from the French or something, that might have made sense, but going and saying we're going to build a fort right next to a much bigger Spanish fort, that makes no sense. And that was what uh, the, the, the Scots tried to do. So the point to saving the Company of Scotland is not getting that colony to work, because that colony literally can't work. Uh, the, the way to do it is to get William Patterson distracted so that he never shows up and says, I'll tell you what you need. You need a Panama City. Right. It's a, you know, Patterson's the name, William Patterson. <laughs> Before we get to that, let's keep going on the uh, uh, the disaster that followed, which is what uh, we're <laughs> which being asked to avert here. Very disastery. Um, and it, the other thing, of course, is that they are just as terrible at building colonies as the Pilgrims were before them and Jamestown was before them. They had the same problem where the Indians, who were rightly suspicious, refused to do anything. <laughs> they, 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 they thought that since the Indians didn't like the Spanish, they'd like the Scots, which, while charming, I think... <laughs> Overemphasizes yeah. the Indians' ability to tell one bunch of annoying white guys from the next, and overestimates their uh, interest in combs and trinkets. Well, yeah, they, again, they're they're literally down the road from a Spanish fort that has been flooding the market with combs and trinkets for um uh, for the better part of a century and a half now. Uh, it's it's a it's a pretty um it's a pretty odd choice all the way around. And then, of course, they're also sitting right there in the malaria and yellow fever country, and dying much as Europeans died in malaria and yellow fever country. And eventually they found a guy who wanted to run things uh, and seemed like he was good at it, but sadly he ran right into a Spanish fusillade while f trying to fight off the Spanish. And th it, as much as if Joseph, John Smith had walked into an ambush and died uh, while trying to fix Jamestown, that was sort of all she wrote for the colony. Um, they wind up being able to negotiate a, a surrender to the Spanish, and they escape um, the, uh, the, 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 the the wreckage of the colony. The, the boats that they built uh, to fix the colony um, eventually decided to go and do slave trading in Africa, and they managed to do that so wrong that they wound up in Madagascar blowing all their money while hanging around with pirates, and it turns out when you're drunk on a beach in Madagascar, pirates take your boat. <laughs> <laughs> I found, yeah, I, I've had a big problem with that myself. Yeah, it, if, if you brought your boat to Pirate Town, Madagascar, and you say, well, I'm sure that pirates will look after my boat while I get drunk and fall asleep, that 
does not always happen. And in fact, a, that a never fitting happens. fitting fate for aspiring slavers, I have yes, to say. Uh, yeah, you, you find it very, very hard to, to weep for the uh, Drummond brothers who screwed everything up so so grammatically throughout the entire process. But uh, yes, it is, um, it is it is not quite being um, uh, speared to death in some godforsaken river, but it is still pretty great. So. But the upshot in Scotland is, oddly enough, if you pull 20 to 50% of the revenue out of an economy, uh, bad things happen. Yep. Um, and uh, there was a, a huge depression that resulted, and of course that uh, resulted in Scotland being unable to resist the lure of uh, union with England on favorable terms to not Scotland. They were lured into a currency union um, uh, and then a, a formal union uh, in 1707. Although, say what you want about the English, and I certainly will, they gave 400,000 pounds to Scotland to sweeten the deal, which was pretty much what they'd lost in the, um, uh, in the Darien disaster. Now, it wasn't the same people who got the 400,000 pounds, of course, because it was the sort of rich dudes who cozied up to the Bank of England and said, this was never any part of my idea that, that got the money. But That's the, never happened before or since or before always or since. in history. No, no government policy except yeah. the Act of Union has ever enriched connected uh, banksters. That has never happened. And it's very weird that it would have happened then. But it did. Um, so there you go. That's the strangeness of the Act of Union. But yes, it uh, Scotland had really, really screwed itself in the in the uh, 16th century by blowing up uh, any number of uh, claimants to the throne, but not enough to prevent sort of an endless wrangle over who got to be king. They, they'd really wrecked themselves at that point. And then once James accepts the throne of England, you know, we, we talk about the demographic pull. You can either be the king of a little tiny country with nobody in it or a big rich country with lots of people in it. And even if you began as a crummy French or fried Stuart like James, you eventually figure out that England is the better deal. How do you say no-brainer in iambic pentameter? Exactly. It is It is uh, just that precisely. Um, a blank verse at the very least. So, that is the point at which I think Scotland has been boned, is by getting itself so grotesquely mismanaged as to um, uh, produce nothing better than then King James, and then King James going and taking the union with England under his personal rubric. Not that that was a bad decision by James, obviously. If you get a choice, do it. If, if someone comes by and offers you the, the British crown, knock yourself out. So is an intervention uh, desirable uh, at all? Or well, I mean, you... if you want to keep that, you know, 400,000 pounds potentially doing any good in the global economy, you want to get Patterson out of the way. You, you take him away and get him, you know, really, really blitzed before his meeting with the company of Scotland. And so when he's got his map of Panama, he's like vomiting all over stuff or, or, or toppling over whatever happens. Right, that, that way the ordinary people who originally had money and still wound up without money, even after it was refunded, they would mm. still be whole. Yeah. Or so, at least uh, they would, they would potentially lose it in a misbegotten attempt to, to trade with India and Africa, as opposed to in a insane attempt to build a colony in Panama. So you go after Patterson. Yeah. Patterson is who you, 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 you take out of the picture because it's his dumb idea to colonize Panama. The, at, at the time, they thought they would just build really good trading ships. They would, uh, set up a, a Scots export industry and, um, try and find markets. And, Given the Scots' ability to find markets be before and since, I don't, I don't count the the, the uh, Scottish company out. I think that there would have been an interesting possibility of an independently economic Scotland operating at 
not necessarily cross purposes, but certainly at skew purposes to the Bank of England and the London uh, merchants. I think that would have been an interesting thing. And maybe Scotland would have wound up instead of, you know, tropical goods. Maybe they would have wound up trading with Nova Scotia, getting Arctic, uh, you know, whaling and um, uh, uh, lumber from Scandinavia, stuff like that. I think that you, or they might have, you know, found one, you know, as you say, one part of uh, some tropical island chain that no one had stolen yet and gone and stole it. And there'd be a little Scottish Hong Kong somewhere or a little Scottish Singapore uh, in uh, some uh, corner of the world. Actually, Singapore was kind of sitting there waiting for someone to build Singapore on it for a long time. So maybe eventually someone did. Yeah. Um, now, uh, forgive me for being parochial, but I want to make sure that there are no changes to this time stream that uh, choke off uh, Canada's 19th century supply of uh Scots impoverished Scotsmen uh, who uh, come here and give us our uh, uh, stoicism and common sense. So we right. want to and make sure that ability to uh, live on a glacier uh, wreck Ontario. Yeah. So the the move against Patterson it's a straight up drink him under, under the table the yeah, night before. It, basically, it's uh, the the reverse of what we were going to do with uh, Bill Gaines for the Senate is you you know just spike his drink or just get him just really hammered so that his presentation is a drunken fumbling disaster as indeed it actually was the fact that he was sober while he delivered it should have no <laughs> impact on that um and uh yeah you you just wrecked patterson's uh, uh presentation now the question is does the existence of an independent scottish trading community that is not tied to the bank of london and is indeed in some competition with it does that make more or less likely floods of scotsmen coming to canada in search of a better life and I think it probably makes it slightly less likely because if you, in fact, avert the second half of the Great Scottish Depression, that implies there will be fewer poor Scotsmen. But keep in mind, the Scots are still going to screw themselves over with two entirely futile rebellions against England. And so there will still be plenty of opportunities for redcoats to march north, burn the whole country to the ground, and once more impoverish everyone such that... Uh, uh, the, the, plenty of poor Scots find Manitoba to be relatively attractive. Well, I, I think that's uh, good enough for me. And, and Time Incorporated also, I think, uh, uh, has had its fears allayed. So they're uh, willing to authorize you to go and uh, uh, drink uh, Patterson under the table. And I guess that, uh, unless there are any other uh, footnotes or filigrees you want to sh share with us, uh, that brings us to the end of our podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep Tomb Robbers at bay by hitting the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or Deerstalker cap by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. Catch us both at CthulhuCon in Portland, Oregon. April 25th and 26th. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>